seated. And children, you can be released for Children's Church, and as they are, if you will turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. If you have your scripture journal, that can be found on page 14, or you can use your, your app or your Bible to turn to Philippians 3. Now, there's two uh, announcements I want to make before we jump into today's text. And the first is that after the service today, we're going to take about a 10 to 15 minute break, and then we're going to be having a partners meeting uh, right after uh, the service. And so this is for anyone here who is a, a gospel partner. We thank you for your partnership. And so we encourage you to, to come and join us for that short meeting. If you're not a partner, you're welcome to sit in. That's not a closed meeting. You can sit in. It's like a family style meeting to hear kind of what's going on. You are welcome to join us for that. And it's going to be to really look at how we can work together as a church family this summer. I'm going to be taking a, a 12 week sabbatical, and that's something we had announced at our last partners meeting. And so we're going to just go over a little bit more details of that and invite you into how we can be partnering together uh, during that time. The second thing I, I wanted to mention was intentionality around our worship gathering. That, that we believe that, that God calls us to gather together, right? Like that's something he says, don't forsake the gathering together of believers. And that when we gather together, that there is an expectation that, that God is present. Like he's at work when we gather and that's something I think we know, but it's something I also want us to increase our expectation of, and that it is appropriate to respond with affection and attention to God. And so our services start at 10. We typically try to have the, the lobby area from kids check-in to coffee and all that ready at 9.30. But here's something that, that we've kind of noticed, is when the service starts... There's only a handful of people in here. Like, you, you put the service together and it's like, oh, we need a transition here. We'll just use prayer as a transition. Now, think about that for a moment. Praying to the holy God who created the heavens and the earth, and we're just going to briefly pray as we transition from one part of the service to the next. Like, there should be something that hits us with that. Like, how dare we? What I don't want is I don't want worship of the living God to be a transition to just the sermon. And, and then we just leave. Like when we gather, there's an intentionality to our service to say that, that we're gathered together to, to lift up the name of Jesus, to call our hearts to worship, that we've come from a busy week. We're going into who knows what this week and to prepare our hearts to sing and worship together. And so I want to encourage us to respond in two ways. One thing we're going to do and one thing I'm going to ask of you. What I'm going to ask of you is, would you try to be here at 945? Get your kids checked in, grab your coffee, fellowship, this isn't just about walking in just for the service. Like, engage, talk, engage with people. But, but set it as a priority. That, that I debated if I was going to say this next week or this week, but why I'm saying it this week is because I want to surprise Anthony. He's with his students this week at, at a retreat. That next week, if we're all in here, <laughs> when Anthony goes to start the service, like, it would be shocking because that's not our normal pattern. But can we do that? 
What we're going to do to help facilitate that is typically we're going to have a speaker starting next week facing outward to the lobby. You heard it today that there's going to be someone who kind of announces, hey, the service is about to begin because it can be hard on the other side of the wall to actually know when it's getting started. So that way it's like, hey, the service is getting ready to get started, wrap up the conversations, make your way in. There'll be a speaker there so you'll be able to hear it, that we want to help facilitate that. Our heart in that is that we would come with an increased expectation to hear from God. Not just know it, but what if our expectation is God's going to meet us this morning? We're going to hear from him. He's going to move in our lives as we're gathered together. That's what we know to be true, and I just want to stoke the fire of expectation in our hearts. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into today's passage. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity and privilege that we have together, together, Lord, as a church family. Lord, I pray that that as we worship and and as we sit under your word, that you would free our minds from distraction, from, from wondering thoughts, wondering affections, Lord, to be present, to be present knowing that you are present Lord, that there would be this expectation and desire to hear from you, that you would move in on us, Lord, for your glory. Bring encouragement this morning. Bring conviction this morning. And above all, glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So look look with me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul begins, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. This is the the classic uh, preacher statement, and finally. Now, it's, it's like the preacher who says, and then conclusion, and then preaches for another 30 minutes, because this is essentially what he's doing. He's in chapter three, and finally, my brothers, and then he's gonna go on through chapter three, and chapter four, and chapter five, but There's also a way to understand this where it's not just finally or in conclusion, but also kind of meaning as in addition. And so, there's a theme that that Paul has been talking about throughout Philippians, and he's adding another point to that theme. And the theme is joy, rejoicing in the Lord. And so let me add another thought to this, he's saying, another thought to what it means to rejoice in the Lord, because he's already, if we kind of follow these themes, he's already said it in chapter one, verse 18, when he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. He's like, look, there's those who are preaching the gospel for selfish gain and there's those who are preaching it to attack me and there's those who are preaching it in honesty. But what am I going to rejoice in? That the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed and that I'm going to rejoice is what Paul says. And he builds on this theme of joy together. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
There is joy in the proclamation of the gospel and there is joy in seeing people grow in the gospel. And he's like, if my life has to be poured out on the altar of your faith to see you grow in Christ, praise be to God, I will rejoice all day long. And he's like, and I hope you rejoice with me. And then he's building and he's like, in addition to this. And so let me add to this thought, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you, it's no trouble for me and it's safe for you. Paul's going to tell us why there's another reason to rejoice in Christ. And it's to see the roots of who Christ is take hold of our hearts. But to do this, there's both a call to rejoice and there's also this warning for what can steal our joy. Because what we're going to see Paul say is there's a reason why rejoicing in the Lord is important. It's like, why does it even matter? Who cares whether we rejoice in the Lord or not? What benefit is it to us? And this is where we, Paul, we hear Paul say to write these same things to you. It's no trouble. He's like, I've already written about it. I'm going to write about it some more after this. It's, it's no matter because Paul knows what it says in Nehemiah 8, verse 10. That the joy of the Lord is your strength. The source of strength to the believer is joy in God. Now think about this for a moment. To to the believer here this morning who's feeling weak, feeling tired, depressed, faint-hearted, who just feels exhausted in life. Paul's like, your strength is in the joy of God. This is what he's wanting to stir in our hearts toward affection and joy in Christ. He's like, this is good for you. It's no trouble for me to remind you of this because there is strength. And not only is there strength, but it's safe for you. There's safety and joy in God. There's something we benefit from. It literally means a a bulwark. Think of, in medieval times, a castle, the walls that protect the inside. Today, think about the Iron Dome of of Israel protecting it against missiles coming in. Like We can think about this place in which we find safety. It's saying that's the joy, rejoicing in the Lord, finding your joy in God. It's safe for you. There's a place of safety here. But there's also dangers. There's safety because there are dangers. There's thieves lurking outside, seeking to breach the walls to come in and steal your joy in God. Before I go to bed every night, the conversation between my wife and I is pretty much the same. We turn off the lights, head to bed, and she's like, did you lock all the doors? And so I make my way downstairs and I make sure the doors are locked. We have cameras on so it senses motion and it'll store it to the cloud. I have lights that automatically come on when the sun goes down. Like we keep our family and our home safe, right? And there's a security we feel going to sleep at night simply knowing the doors are locked. Even if I forget to put the garage door down. Like, right? And then you wake up in the morning, you're like, whoops, we weren't as safe as we thought we were, but it was still a good night's sleep. 
This is what Paul's saying, look out. Lock the doors. You, you protect your homes, protect your heart. Protect your joy in Christ. Look out. Look out for, for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There's this thief that wants to come in, and it's vicious, but it's inviting. See, it's, it's self-righteous and prideful. Oh, but it's going to encourage this self-improvement. Oh, they have this air of superiority, but they're going to offer you a sense of belonging in this in-group. They're hardworking. They're going to say that you can earn what feels out of reach. See, the reality is, is that these thieves don't just, aren't just threatening to break in and steal your joy. The danger is that we open up the doors to them. In our desire for self-improvement, in our desire for belonging, in our desire for all these things, we open up the door and we let them in. And it's in, in Paul saying, look out, beware, because they will steal your joy in the Lord. And to emphasize this, each three of these in the original language in Greek start with the same letter. It's an alliteration. It's not just me, pastors, who do this. I don't know why I like doing this. Start everything with the same letter, right? We just feel more creative that way. Paul started it. Okay, it's here. But he started it with the letter kappa. It's, a, it's like a K. I couldn't figure out how to do it with a K, so I did it with a C because I wasn't feeling that creative. But look at these three things. He's mentioning three things here, three characteristics to look out for. Canines. This one was easy, right? Dogs. He calls them dogs. But here's the thing. It's not like dogs, like a man's best friend. We have two dogs at home. It's not like the pets that you come home to. Dogs at the time were not pets. They were more like scavengers. Think of hyenas, right? Who, who scavenger? They eat roadkill, that they were the, the, the poster child of what it meant to be unclean. This is what Paul was saying. This is what they are. But here's the thing that's so humorous about it. The people themselves were known as Judaizers. They were those who were of a Jewish background and said that you have to follow the culture of Judaism in order to be accepted by God. And so whether you were a Jew or not, you had to follow all the customs and rules and regulations of what it meant to be a Jew in order to be accepted by God. And even if you did all those things, you were still like a second-class citizen. They saw themselves as great. They saw everybody else as dogs, as unclean. And Paul flips that. And he says, actually, they're the dogs. They take pride in their background. They take pride in their heritage. They take pride in their, their education, in their wealth, in their ethnicity. And they think everybody else is other than them. Separate. And somehow that their background gives them a special standing before God. And Paul's like, beware of such people who put their hope and faith in such things. He's like, look out for the convicts, for the, for the evildoers, not just people who have been in jail, like, oh no, you've been in jail. No. The interesting thing is these people thought they did everything right. These people followed the laws. They, they did everything. They were full of good deeds. 
They were like, look at all the good things I've done. This is to the person when asked, if God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say to the person who says, well, I've grown up in a Christian home and I'm a good person? This is who Paul's talking to. He's saying, look out. Your background isn't your hope. Your good deeds are a danger. It's a convict. It's an evildoer. It's not good. Beware of this mentality that finds your value before God because of your background or your own goodness. Beware. Beware of those who who cut themselves, (coughs) who mutilate the flesh. This is specifically talking about circumcision within Jewish tradition. And, 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 it's, and, and Paul's really kind of being strong in his language in this section. The, the word for mutilate here, and, and this is where it just gets kind of interesting, in the original language it rhymes with and it looks like circumcision. So it's this play on word between mutilation and circumcision that's happening here. And this word for mutilate, like these people are thinking that the act of circumcision has made them, this religious duty that they've been obedient to now gives them acceptance before God, makes them better than everyone else. And Paul's saying that that's like cutting your flesh, mutilating your flesh. It's the same word that's found in 1 Kings 18. Can you get me something? For when the prophets of Baal, when the prophet Elijah is wanting to call down fire from heaven and the prophets of Baal are like, hey, we're going to pray to our false god, Baal, and, but he's not listening. Elijah starts mocking them and, and so they start to cut themselves with knives and swords. It's that same word that's being used there. And so here's these people who are doing these religious duties who think that all those things they're doing is making them right before God. And Paul's like, They're no better than the prophets of Baal who cut themselves. Beware. Look out for them. This is the strong warning. Thank you, love. Of when it says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then in verse 3, it continues. And what you're going to see is Paul is contrasting these three things he just mentioned with three new thoughts that he's going to unpack throughout the passage. Look at what it says. For we are the circumcision. Who are those who are set apart in worship of God? Is it those who have just done religious duties? Is it just those who come from a particular background who are more good than bad? No. He's like, we are the circumcision. Who worship by the Spirit of God, not by our background. Not by our heritage, not because we grew up in the right home or we have the right education or the right color skin, the right number in our bank account. No, it's not because of our background. It's because we worship by the spirit of God. Is it because of our good works? Is it because of the good things we've done? No, we glory in Christ Jesus. It's in him and who he is, not in who I am and what I've done. But what about all the religious duties we've done? No. And I will put no confidence in the flesh. 
Do you see? Those three descriptions that he's using, he counters then in verse 3. But you can see that this has set something off in Paul's mind. And it's this question, so in what will I rejoice? See, he's called us to rejoice in God. But there's this question now of what will I rejoice in, myself? Or will I rejoice in God? Because the reality is the threat that we have to protect our hearts against isn't just something that's trying to attack It isn't just something that sometimes we invite in. Sometimes it's my own desires. It's my own longings. It's my own heart that I have to beware of. And Paul is calling us to say, what are you rejoicing in? Where have you placed your joy? Is it in God where there is strength and there is safety? Or is it in yourself? And then we see Paul continue here in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Do you hear what he's saying? It's like he's singing you the song, anything you can do, I can do better. Right? Like, oh, you think you're good. That's funny. I'm better. Like, if we want to measure ourselves on these human standards, I'm better than you. That's what he's saying. And then he's going to list out, like just in case there's any question, let me tell you seven reasons why, if you're going to just look at yourself, why I'm better than you. And this is what he goes on to do in verses five through six. He's like, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's what the law commanded from birth. Before he could even make that decision himself, it was done to him. And he's like, that makes me better. I'm a Jew. Most of the people here in Philippi, in the city, were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And of the Jews, there's 12 tribes. And he's like, and I was from the tribe of Benjamin. So even among the Jews, I'm a better Jew. He's like, of the Hebrews, I was a better Hebrew, is what he's saying. Talk about the law. He was a Pharisee. Like, this was his life, his education, what he gave him to. Zeal, you want to talk about how zealous he was as a Jew? He was the one holding the coats when they stoned Stephen. He was the one out there trying to persecute the church. Righteousness? I was blameless. What Paul is saying is if you want to measure yourself on these things, he would have much to boast in. And Paul's making a point here. He's like, we can list out. List out your education. List out your background. List out all the good things you've done for God and you've done for others. List them all out. Write them all out. Make a list. And then tell me the value of that list compared to Christ. That's what Paul is going to do. Because then in verse 7, but... And that's the big thing. Don't think Paul is just being prideful. He's making a point here to tear it all down. But whatever gain I had, whatever I thought these things achieved for me, whatever list I presented to God, like, don't you love me now? Aren't I accepted now? Aren't I a good person? I haven't done these bad things. I've done these good things. I've accomplished all these things. Whatever I counted... Whatever I thought it had given me, whatever gain I thought I deserved because of it, 
I counted it as lost for the sake of Christ. Compared to Christ, that list is nothing. And indeed, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all these things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And there we have it. This compare and contrasting that's beginning to happen. Where he's like, all these things that we can put our hopes in, what have they become? In what will I rejoice? What I thought I brought before God to make me right, all of it combined has no value. If I could call it one thing, he says, I would call it explosive diarrhea. You're kind of like, that's disgusting. Like when you're not for sure if it all ended up inside the toilet, just to kind of press into the disgustingness of this. This is what he's saying. This is how I call it. Because Paul's warned against putting your hope in background, putting your hope in your heritage, putting your hope in good works, in your actions, putting your hopes in religious duties. And Paul calls it all rubbish. Now, if you're like, rubbish sounds different than explosive diarrhea, that's because it, they're trying to be polite and I'm not. The, the Christian Standard Bible does a bit better in the literal translation is dung. It is excrement. It is feces. This is what Paul is calling it. All of these things, this list of all these good things, what I think of it is that it is dung. It is rubbish. How does it even compare to the surpassing worth of Christ? And then he's going to, to go on to this. How do I compare? I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What am I saying no to? It's not like it has value. It's not like it's some great treasure of wealth. It is literally dung. And I'm saying no to it so that I can gain Christ? How do you even compare the two? They can't be compared. I gain Christ. My Jesus is what we see on the slide. That's what we get. Not my heritage. Not my background. Not my good deeds. I get Christ. That's the hope. That's what we receive. And even more than that, as it says in verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, so you can hold to your own good deeds, you can hold to I'm a good person, or you can say no to that. In the righteous perfection of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, perfect for all eternity, perfect in life, his perfection becomes ours. His goodness becomes ours. So tell me, what will you rejoice in this morning? Your own goodness or the goodness, the perfect goodness of Christ? Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. 
because there is safety and there is strength in him. And there's only a mess when it comes to your own goodness. Having a righteousness that is not my own. That I may know him, it says in verse 10. See, look at this. When it says, like, for his sake, so indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And that I may know him. At this point, Paul has walked with Jesus for 30 years. He's endured much in that time. He had persecuted the church before this. And on his way to Damascus, when God appeared to him and said, like, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's like, who are you, Lord? And he's like, I'm Jesus, the one whom you persecute. And Paul's life is transformed. And Paul's like, everything I put my hope in, Everything I had trusted in is loss. And that I might know, that I might know him. There's still a sweetness on the soul of Paul to know Christ, to know him. Not just the technical aspect of, yes, covered in his righteousness, but I know him. I can talk to him. I have a relationship with the living God. Why would I put any hope or confidence in myself? What would you rather this morning? Would you rather me just hold up a mirror so that you can gaze at your own reflection? Or would you rather sit face to face with your Savior, looking into his eyes and hearing his voice and his truth? I pray none of us would choose the mirror. that I might know him and and that I might know the the power of his resurrection, it continues, may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means, any means possible, whatever it takes, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Will we worship our own power and our own strength or will we celebrate and rejoice in the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead and is alive in us who believe on the name of Jesus Christ today? Which of these will you rejoice in? One commentary I read this week said it this way 2,000 years ago. On the first day of the week, Christ's cold body lay on a chilled stone in the arms of death. His heart was stilled in the icy grip of the grave. Whatever blood remained was congealed in his veins. His eyes were fixed and dilated. His body was tightly bound with spices and grave clothes. Then, then, Before the dawn, his vacant eyes blinked open and coursed with light, focused in glittering life. And with the ease of omnipotence, his body left the wrappings like an empty cocoon. And Christ was physically raised from the dead. 
the power of the resurrection is alive in us who believe on the name of Jesus. By any means necessary, Paul says. Do you see the question? Rejoice in the Lord. Will you rejoice in yourself, in your own list of accomplishments, or will you rejoice in Christ Jesus to even share in his sufferings? And Paul makes it clear, how do we come to know Jesus? How do we come to have his goodness and the power of his resurrection at work within us. It's a word that if you notice, it's the same word that was mentioned twice, faith. In verse 9, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Not just a random faith, not a faith without object or direction, a faith that is focused on Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on on faith. It is a righteousness that belongs to Christ, becomes ours because of faith. Faith being the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that we cannot see, but that we believe that who Jesus said himself to be, he is. And what he said he came to accomplish, he has accomplished. It means when Jesus says that he is God, and if you're wondering what is this that we believe, simply go back to Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. He didn't consider equality with God something that he had to strive for. He was God. He became a servant, laying down his life, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus was perfect, full of goodness and righteousness, and yet died on the cross to pay the penalty for our wrongs. And he rose from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, so that if we place our faith and trust in Jesus, his righteousness becomes ours. And we stand, and what can we do but sing and rejoice in the one who has saved us? Denying our own goodness and rejoicing in the Lord, because in him, in Christ, that is our strength. In Christ, that is our safety. And so finally, cross point, what can we say? But to rejoice in the Lord. Look not to yourself, but look to Christ. Let your hearts sing. Let your hearts be strengthened this morning because of who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.